Welcome to Buckinghamshire History Festival 2020. In this podcast, we listen in as Mary Brown and Pallavi Podapati compare notes on their time spent working with the records of the Bucksbourne Institution, the Paralympic Movement. How do we do that? <laughs> They're going to edit that out. Should I pause and we do that again? Hi, everyone. My colleague and I are happy to be here with you for the Buckinghamshire History Festival. We are recording this in early August, and it is a heat wave for pretty much everyone in Buckinghamshire, along with everyone in the United States. Bear with us in this warm environment. My name's Mary Brown. I was the project archivist for the Spinal to Sport project that took place at the Buckinghamshire Archives over 2017 to the end, well, the end of January 2020. It was a joint project with the National Paralympic Heritage Trust, um, funded by the Welcome Trust, and encompassed material from the National Spinal Injuries Center at Stoke Mandeville, the International Wheelchair and Amputee Sports Federation, and uh, Wheel Power. So that is my expertise, not expertise, but interest and knowledge of the Paralympic movement. And my colleague will introduce herself as well. Hi everyone, uh, my name is Pallavi Puttapati. I am a PhD student at Princeton University where I am getting my degree in the History of Science program. My dissertation um, sort of materialized over the course of 2019 and I wanted to study disability in the unique context of sport. Prior to that, I had always worked on disability as it related to social policy, so employment practices and compensation practices. But I found that disability is often framed in a negative way, and I wanted to find a space where that kind of negative framing was either challenged, and this really just led me to studying the Paralympics. And I was in Aylesbury um, in the fall and winter of 2019 and early 2020, which seems like decades ago uh, in the context of this pandemic. And I'm really excited to be able to see my friend and colleague, Mary. Um, I'm tuning in from Philadelphia, where it is 90 degrees Fahrenheit. I think that's 30 degrees Celsius. So yes, it is very warm. (laughs) We're experiencing it everywhere. So yeah, I thought that we could just spend some time talking about the Paralympic movement as it relates to Buckinghamshire, but also the world over. Yeah, Mary, I just wanted to, I was wondering if you could explain this to me, even though, you know, secretly you've already done so. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I just wanted to know, like, how did the materials end up in Aylesbury? And what is Spinal to Sport as a project? So... There was a lot of interest surrounding the London 2012 Paralympic Games, and the Buckinghamshire Archives sort of undertook a project leading up to the 2012 Games called the Mandeville Legacy Project. 
a website that you're probably familiar with that I hope a lot more people are going to be familiar with after we discuss it today. The Mandeville Legacy Project was aiming to support and develop archival collections and relationships. They were looking to research the story and history of Stoke Mandeville to sort of foster a better public understanding of Paralympic history and sort of develop and improve access to Paralympic materials, Paralympic history materials. And so in the course of this project, obviously it created a website. There are many different aspects to it, including oral histories and collecting sort of stories from staff and athletes and officials and everyone involved in the games, collecting uh, archival artifacts. They also developed some really cool programs for schools to be able to use and incorporate Paralympic history into their curriculum. That created a broader collection policy for Buckinghamshire Archives because of the importance of Stoke Mandeville to the entire Paralympic movement, because that is where it started. And people in Stoke Mandeville are really proud of that, too, (laughs) um, as they should be. Yeah, it sort of developed from there, and then they were sort of looking for projects in terms of the relationships they've created with people have brought different collections into the archives that need cataloging and digitization and like outreach done over so they're accessible to people like you to come and research. So that was sort of the springboard, if you will, into the Spinal Disport Project, which took the collections, like I said before, from the National Spinal Injury Center, which opened in 1944 uh, under Dr. Gutman's pioneering vision. Those are a collection of patient records from everyone who was a patient in the spinal unit, which is both inpatient and outpatient. And also the, I worked on the International Wheelchair and Amputee Sports Federation sporting history files. They were one of the organizations that were involved in the outset of the sporting history. It's interesting because they came from the Stoke Mandeville Games Federation into what is now IWAS, the International Wheelchair and Amputee Sports Federation. And they were many things under that banner. Uh, As they sort of got bigger and bigger, it became the International Stoke Mandeville Games Federation and the International Wheelchair Games Federation and expanded from there. So there, there is a lot of records throughout an extended period of time. Yeah, I mean, for someone like me, a historian of medicine and disability, um, there is actually very little that's been written about the history of the Paralympics. That's not to say that there aren't histories out there, but I think those are like really useful first steps in really bringing more, more historical interest to the subject. Like, Ian Britton and Steve Bailey have both written very like institutional level histories. And, you know, just like as a, as a junior scholar entering into the field, I really wanted to understand more about this transformation from, from what I was able to find in being in Aylesbury and in the archives with Mary. It was just this like really remarkable story of an opening of a spinal unit, which had 
not really ever been done before the 1940s in the context of World War II. And I think it's really important to say that, you know, the mortality rates from spinal cord injuries was 80% through World War I. At Stoke Mandeville, after its opening, they were able to drop that to 10% within the first 10 years of the unit's existence. So my dissertation, the first chapter at the very least, is very focused on the development of the sports wheelchair. And wheelchair sports was the first kind of disability sport that was developed um, because the patients there were paralyzed and then during the polio epidemics that came through the 50s and the 60s also had polio. It was really interesting um, to just understand that I was watching and reading and writing about people who were navigating a completely new arena where at one point it was expected that people injured in this way with a spinal cord injury would ultimately succumb for, to their wounds. And then to have Gutman's changes to treatment with antibiotics and physiotherapy and really close monitoring of bowel and bladder movements, you could actually ensure that the patients survived. And then the question then became, well, what does life after injury look like? So getting to like stay close to these really amazing materials to see how not only Gutman, but also patients figured that out um, and then turned into this really tight-knit and supportive community has just been incredibly rewarding. And yeah, I've just been really so grateful for the preservation of the materials. And, you know, it's very, uh, like, yes, there's lots of technical materials, but I think one of the most important and rewarding parts of the collections are also this deep attention to the personal stories. And so, Mary, I, I was just wondering um, if you could tell us, even though I have seen a lot of the collection, um, like what kinds of objects and materials people coming to um, the archives might expect to see and engage with. The place that I tell people to start when they come to the archives and want to learn more about Paralympic history, especially the early days, is our collection of the cord. That collection is an insightful way to be able to see patients' experiences, especially not just patients, but it follows different people sort of throughout their lives and whether they're involved in sports or whether they go to one of the different communities uh, that existed, uh, the Dutch and Gloucester House or the Lime Green Settlement or places like that where they sort of set up living and working communities. I just found even the articles are so personal in it, which is great. It, it's an interesting way to be able to actually see people's experiences. I feel a lot of the times what you're looking at in archival history can be very institutional, um, which a lot of the records are, and that isn't to say that they aren't important and they aren't worth saying themselves. But I do find those personal stories really interesting. And I think that's sort of something that you felt too when you looked through Oh, them. definitely. So it's like pretty 
it's a real treasure, speaking from the perspective of a historian, to be able to find the cord, which is the name of the patient newsletter. It was started, I want to say that the cord started running in 1947. And the first editor was someone named Captain P.F. Stewart. And, you know, the baton gets passed so that there are many editors after Stewart. But I just want to acknowledge that um, (laughs) he was the first editor. Um, But it is really remarkable because it's a a patient-driven initiative. And what they're doing in the court is, at first, it is a newsletter for the paraplegic branch of the British Legion. Then it quickly becomes the newsletter for just paraplegics across the UK and then more broadly paraplegics across the world who are coming to Stoke Mandeville to participate in the Stoke Mandeville Games, which is, that was the name of the games um, before they took on the name, the Paralympics, um, kind of informally in the 1960s and then officially in the 1980s. Um, It functions as a way to provide information about transitioning to independent living in the home if um, individuals, and this includes men and women. I think one of the things to highlight is that men and women sustained spinal cord injuries during World War II in the UK. While, and I think this is like, this is the importance of the collection is that it really combats this tendency to say that disability sports started with primarily men in mind. Yes, it's easier in the historical record to draw attention to disabled veterans and servicemen, but that doesn't do justice to the reality um, that women and others um, beyond servicemen faced in the context of World War II. And so people are writing in about how to how to, again, like transition into independent living, or if not, if there are communities and um, things like Lime Green and the Kite Settlement where people could live with the assistance that they needed. And then also questions about, you know, like, how do you stay healthy outside of hospital? How do you engage with society again? And like, what are the issues that able-bodied society present to full inclusion to disabled people. Um, And so these conversations are being had and sustained by people. And I think that this is, you know, like a breath of fresh air, especially when a lot of records tend to hold an institutional perspective. And so the other things that I found really interesting are the material objects in the collection. Yeah. Yeah, like a pair of earrings I saw um, that belonged to one of, so um, when the first Stoke Mandeville Archery Tournament happened in, oh, I want to say it was 1944, could have also been 1948. Well, 1948 was the first games, but archery was very important to Dr. Gutman because it involved so much balance and upper arm strength that people who were transitioning to being in wheelchairs really needed. So it was one of those things. I mean, early on, it was things like wheelchair polo and netball, basketball, however you want to term that um, too. Uh, But yeah, archery was one of the sort of first things that they even played before those games happened. Um, I think I'm remembering now. So sports 
entered into this program of physical rehabilitation very early on. It's really important to point out, you know, at first, like to answer this question of like, what does life after injury look like? It was a very open-ended question. Um, and so there is there are many different voices at the table. So Gutman is trying to figure this out. And what I remember reading is that he really wanted paraplegic patients to be able to maintain an upright standing position on calipers and crutches. But patients on the ward were arguing that it wasn't a defeat to be in a wheelchair. And in fact, what they would prioritize was how to navigate life in a wheelchair, because that was what was more comfortable for them. And I think Gutman very quickly, but after some time and convincing, understood their perspective and then had, was watching a group of patients. They had turned their calipers upside down, their calipers and crutches upside down, and they were like hitting a ball to each other from their chairs. And then he just quickly implemented sports as a part of this physical rehabilitation practice, which is very unusual for the time. Like I think Stoke Mandeville's approach to using physiotherapy and physical rehabilitation um, for the treatment of paraplegia was very novel. What I remember reading is that like they go through these cycles of different sports, but then archery becomes so important, like Mary was saying, because it built up compensatory muscles in the arms, the shoulders, the back, the abdominals, so that individuals could push their own chairs and they could also do tasks like reaching out of their chairs to pick things up. And it just increased a kind of physical independence that I think would have been denied to them in other spaces. And archery develops all of these compensatory muscles, so it became a clear favorite. And I think the very first archery tournament that did not involve just Stoke Mandeville patients did take place in 1948. On the same day and about the same time as the Olympic Games returned to London. And the earrings that I mentioned before, I found a pair of earrings that belonged to a woman named Robin Irvine. Her maiden name was Imre, and they're archery themed. And she and her dear friend, Joan Bunty Noon, were the two women who first competed in that first archery tournament. But there are tons of material objects that have these really important messages. So Mary, I don't know if you want to tell us more about the things you came across. I quite liked the flags that we have that show the development of the games over time, I'd say. If you look at some of the early photos of the games that were taking place at Stoke Manville, you can see the flag that they used was a flag that had SMG in the middle of it and was surrounded by stars. And the stars are sort of representing countries and people, different organizations competing in the games. And as time went on, they added to the flag. So it's one of those sort of, in a, in a sense, living archival pieces that you can see. It was interesting to go through with um, our conservator. Sam Joyner, who went through all of the flags and did amazing things to, to conserve them and protect them. Very thankful for her help on all of this. And it was just interesting to see where these stars had been stitched in. We actually had someone on staff 
who was a volunteer uh, during the 80s. It was interesting to hear some of her stories about her volunteering experience um, and how involved volunteers were. And it just kind of made me think back to these flags and thinking, wow, like someone was actually really lovingly involved in sort of keeping this tradition going and and amending these. So we have that flag and quite a lot of the other ones, things from like the Toronto games and the Arnhem games and yeah, some of the different winter games. So uh, there's a lot of different flags in the collection, which I really like. But also I love uh, the metal collection that we have. There's a lot of them. And one of the things that a lot of people told me were not necessarily very written in stone about the patients on the spinal unit actually making a lot of the medals for the earlier games. And I love the cases, some of the medals that have cases. Um, on the inside, it says that they were made by the patients at the spinal unit, which I think is just such an amazing thing that it, it was such a community event. So community for the spinal unit that they're, you know, bringing this home and putting this on and participating, but also like within the community that these volunteers are coming through and, and getting involved as well, that it was just quite a community effort, which I think you can really see in some of the different artifacts and we have a bronze medal from the uh, Seoul 1988 games with the bear mascots. And that was the like, first game that the Paralympic name was used in official capacity, right? Yes, it was. So yeah, I, I like that one. I did a social media post a while back during the uh, winter games. I had like a whole string of social media posts uh, following the Winter Paralympic Games. If you can go back that far on uh, Facebook or Instagram or wherever you uh, get your social media on our uh, Buckinghamshire Archives uh, accounts. But I did a thing on the mascots of the Paralympic Winter Games, but you could really do them for like all of the Paralympic Games because some of the mascots just really kept me going when things were a bit stressful. It was just really entertaining, some of the mascots. But yeah, those bears were pretty entertaining. <laughs> so I loved those. And this isn't an insignificant portion of the collections, but um, another thing that I found really incredible was the photos that really span the history of the games from the early days when they were known as the Stoke Mandible Games, or not even officially as a series of games, but just um, activities at a spinal unit in Aylesbury. And I think for me, it just became so clear that this early history is really important because I think for most people, when I say I work on the Paralympics, all that they can imagine is this contemporary Paralympics where the athletes are super professionalized. The games are, they're like, they're on such a scale that it's hard to imagine that there was this like community-based initiative that was, you know, maybe had dreams of bringing together a global community, but it certainly was just driven by individuals who are navigating the same series of questions, which was, 
now that there's a community of paraplegics in this aftermath of World War II, like, what does life look like? And how do we maintain community with each other? And how do we deal with like these negative stigmas that able-bodied society place onto us? And yet, how do we find joy through physical expression? And so, I mean, these photos are really incredible. Um, like Mary was saying, like the early games were like a total volunteer effort. So you see nurses and physiotherapists like standing on the sidelines keeping score and you have patients also keeping score. Um, tallying, I guess, like the archery points, which I claim no deep knowledge of how the different kinds of archery happen, but I was learning that it's very complicated and point taking is very important. And then it's just, yeah, Mary, if you could tell us about the photos and like who's donated these photos, where are they coming from? The photograph collection uh, we have at Buckinghamshire Archives is. Um, extensive there's just thousands and it's a combination of photographs from the international wheelchair and amputee sport federation and uh from wheel power and um yeah there are thousands of them that span from as you were saying from the you know 1940s until yeah probably the early 2000s yeah, and, and it's it's all sorts of things, which I find very interesting. I mean, obviously, the ones that people are usually really interested in are the ones that are from the games or the early ones that are depicting different physio activities or just different sports that were being done. But yeah, it really runs the gamut because the royal family has been quite involved with the Paralympic movement from the very beginning. Um, I think the first royal to come to a games was Prince Philip in the late 1950s. And we have some great photos of him looking at archery. I think the story was that he was only supposed to stay for like half an hour or something. And he went well over an hour, like just being able to talk to people and he just really enjoyed it and then obviously the queen opened the new stadium in 1969 and there's lots of photos from her her outfit was fantastic and bright yellow <laughs> which was great <laughs> absolutely great i loved the color photos of that so i could see that it was bright yellow yeah um so yeah, and there's some from like the 96 games um, with uh, <laughs> with uh, Vice President Gore and uh, some people that probably only maybe Americans know, although maybe I'm just making their scope really small. But uh, I mean, I understand. The 96 was the Atlanta games, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and like that Carly Simon sense. was there, which was great um, <laughs> to me. <laughs> And uh, we have a picture of Liza Minnelli performing, which I also thought was great, um, <laughs> but also maybe just me. But yeah, no, I, I, I think, also thought it was great. Yeah, <laughs> it, it really spans such a large period of time, and it isn't solely wheelchair based, but for the most part, it is just because of the organizations that have donated the materials. Um, 
there, there's a lot of really great photos out there. A lot of great ones that I used for the Winter Paralympic Games posts, which um, are definitely worth a look, especially some of the early games. Yeah, so the photographs are incredible and yeah, so extensive and are not just games-based. Also look at some of the physiotherapy that's done. For historians of medicine out there, um, the National Spinal Injuries Center um, has these, has a collection of like plates. Yes. And so those were incredibly helpful for me in trying to figure out, you know, what was it like to be a patient at the spinal unit? And so there, there's evidence of the kinds of treatments and routines and the, the daily exercises, but also um, just pictures of the individuals on the ward, like in their most relaxed state. So it's just like they throw like holiday parties, but also they're hanging out with their friends. And I think one of my favorite photos is of two women on the ward, Joan Bunty Noon and Pat Theobald. And so Pat Theobald's paralysis is more severe in the sense that it limited the use of her hands. And the problem was that she really wanted to smoke uh, without the ash falling, falling under her hospital linens and leaving holes and you know, she'd get kind of chided by the nurses and the staff. And so Bunty, her friend, um, actually became a quite skilled metal worker. And she designed this like really crafty device that was a cigarette holder and ashtray so that her friend Pat could smoke. Like it's one of my favorite photos. And it's just the two <laughs> posing. Bunty is watching Pat like just starting on that cigarette and just testing it out is fantastic. And it just, it really gets us, because for me, um, in being in the collections, what really transformed was I got an understanding of disability sports as they grew as not being um, so much about an institution or, you know, an administrator's project. It really highlights how individual people disabled people really shaped sports and so for me like i had a i had a hope before the dissertation you know came off the ground and i really got to get into the archives but i really wanted to be able to talk about the paralympics as being about more than just sport and it does offer a space to think about disability and the, man the emancipatory potentials of sport, but really society and its views on disability in the hopes of pushing the conversation forward towards a more inclusive and equitable society. I think for me, like the collections really hold all of the materials for people who are just interested in the games, but also wanting to see really incredible legacy and how, how this space developed. No, absolutely. And the work that goes into a Paralympic Games is absolutely incredible. We have most, if not, I imagine all of the 1992 teens games records and the amount of 
just faxes back and forth talking about different requirements and numbers and exactly how they're going to do it and all the officials involved and it's just mind-blowing how you organize something on such a massive scale and it was really nice to see as part of this project the beginnings of you know getting to see kind of how they put together the 1948 sports festival and how they put together some of these really large scale events. A teens 1992 winter games was the last games that were not the International Paralympic Committee games. So in 1992 their first games were the summer um, games in Barcelona um, and obviously now the International Paralympic Committee runs the games. Um, <laughs> but prior to that, so this last 1992 games uh, in teens involved a lot of the original, the international kind of Stoke Mandeville games, but also the international coordinating committee and different things they set up to help organize the games as it got sort of more and more of a undertaking. So it was just amazing to see the work that goes into it and how dedicated people are to the work. And I do feel like it, it is very important that a lot of this is athlete-centered, but it is, there are a lot of people like um, Joan Scruton who spent almost her entire life <laughs> organizing these games and these opportunities for so many people, which is really really incredible. So yeah, I, I find those things quite interesting too in terms of institutional history. Just that I think you don't really understand how big something is until you're actually, or just how complicated it is, or how I think there's a lot of people who are like, well, how do they choose what athletes go? And like, yeah, there are, you know, meets and competitions and the same way a lot of athletes are chosen to go to a lot of different championship sort of games, but there's just different like numbers that they have to fit in and different countries get different. And it's just incredible. <laughs> just the absolute like intensity of it is incredible, which is amazing. It's just incredible to see like and again it's sort of like a community coming together in a way even though it's a much larger broader world community yeah and the collections really do offer access into that history and the details and the nuance mary i feel like we've like just sang the praises of the collections um so we don't really need to convince anyone that they're worth visiting and using um but as a way of concluding um there, there are just such powerful insights that are possible through the collections held at these archives. Um, and so I just really want to encourage everyone, members of the public, uh, fellow historians and scholars, visit if you have a chance. You will likely be very surprised by what you find. I think what's interesting to me is that, in a sense, the Paralympics, this whole movement has always been a labor of love. It was a stressful project at times. It was certainly felt that way to me too. <laughs> um, it just feels so significant and underrepresented and under, maybe not underappreciated, but there's certainly not a lot of knowledge about what exists out there in the world. 
and I feel the more people get to see this and get to talk to people about it, the better off will be. I really do think it holds a lot of great information that is so useful to historians, useful to almost anyone. I mean, I love that the Manville Legacy website has things for school curriculums too, because I think it's a really sort of understudied. Yes, I second all of those things. (laughs) Um, And so I guess I just want to end by saying thank you all for joining us and listening to us. Um, It's been a real treat. And it's also really nice to see my friend and colleague, Mary, from across the pond in this Zoom reality. Um, And so, yeah. Thank you all again. Thank you, Mary and Pallavi. We also need to thank the Wellcome Trust and the National Paralympic Heritage Trust. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we have plenty of other talks, conversations and articles on our festival website. So go and explore buckshistoryfestival.co.uk. Buckinghamshire History Festival is brought to you by Buckinghamshire Archives.